0: Hello, hello. Welcome to episode 33 of the Fitness Insider Podcast. I'm Natalie Wolf and I will be your host. Ladies, this one is for you, although all are welcome, and men, you may walk away with a lot more knowledge and understanding after tuning into this too. But hello and welcome. Today's guest is Dr. Kate Namas. This is a very informative conversation with a well-respected naturopathic doctor specializing in women's health. So Dr. Kate Namas and I We'll cover a whole host of topics ranging from preconception to pregnancy to postpartum and a little on infertility and miscarriage, too. We also talk about what a healthy cycle looks like, and we have so much to talk about, we're going to have to get her back on the show to answer more of your questions. So I was actually connected to Dr. Namas through my chiropractor, Dr. Denisa Weber, who she has been on the podcast before, too. And she also works with Madely um, Levy, who was episode 30. Um, so yeah, she's been highly recommended to me. Um, and I've just heard about her. I've been following her on Instagram. And I'm just super intrigued by hormones and hormone health and all this preconception, pregnancy. There's so much to learn. So a little bit about Dr. Kate Namas. She holds a doctorate in naturopathy and a certificate in midwifery from Bastor University. She holds a BA in biochemistry from Mount Holyoke. She's also a member of the American Association of Naturopathic Physicians and the Texas Association of Naturopathic Doctors. The state of Texas does not currently license naturopathic doctors. Thus, she holds her license in Oregon and Washington and acts in Texas as a wellness consultant, not as a physician. Dr. Namas has been featured as a natural health expert on TV programs such as ABC's Good Morning Texas, KTXD's D, the broadcast, CW's DFW Close-Up, and radio programs across the U.S. She's written for the general public in publications such as D Magazine and scholarly publications such as Naturopathic Doctor News and Review. Dr. Namas has been a featured speaker for the North Texas Midwives Association and for the Southwest Symposium at AOMA. Dr. Namas is an expert in natural approaches to preconception, fertility, pregnancy, postpartum, PCOS, endometriosis, cervical health, and female hormone health. She's the owner of Holistic Wellness, a telehealth wellness consultancy based in Texas since 2011. She's now in Oregon. So what can you expect in this episode? Well, we talk about what a naturopathic doctor does and how she got into it and how you can find one, tips on what to eat and take before trying to conceive, when to get off the pill, top things to do when trying to conceive, how to select a prenatal vitamin, what steps your spouse or partner needs to take, pregnancy, how to beat nausea in the first trimester, whether ultrasounds are safe, COVID vaccine, her thoughts on them, things to consider if you're pregnant or trying to conceive, postpartum depression, how to detect it, infertility, when to see a doctor, miscarriage, what a healthy menstrual cycle looks like, and more. So I hope you guys learned something from this and enjoy your episode. Hi, Dr. Namas. Thank you so much for joining me this morning. It's been something I've been really personally excited about. And also just a lot of people on Instagram have sent in tons of questions. So we have, like you said before this, like five hours of content that we could talk (laughs) about here. (laughs) But thank you for coming on the show. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So let's just jump right in. Like, can you start out telling me, um, how you got into naturopathy and why you decided to focus in on women's health specifically in their reproductive years? Yes.
1: So um, I went to a women's college. I went to Mount Holyoke, which is a women's college in New England. So from a very young age, I was interested in the plight of women and the wellness of women and the communities of women um, and how our relationships impact each other. Um, And I thought that by going to a women's college, I would Learn a whole bunch of information about women and women's health and women's relationships, but really, I just got a degree in biochemistry. And when I was in college, I was not well, um, and I don't want to get into my whole story, but because of my unwellness, um, I sought out a lot of different healthcare practitioners, and. Um, An acupuncturist was the one who really helped me in the beginning, and later a naturopath really helped me. And I had been diagnosed with a couple of autoimmune disorders, young, um, and was really thankful to have a whole medical team that helped me, including a naturopath and an acupuncturist. And so that definitely impacted my desire to um, go the natural medicine route. But I still hadn't decided that. After college, I worked in a molecular biology lab in Oregon. And I was thinking, do I want to do medical school? Do I want to be an MD-PhD? Do I want to be a naturopath? Do I want to be a midwife? (laughs) Still really exploring that. Um, And then decided after doing molecular biology research for a year that I wasn't going to be a research scientist. Um, Interviewed at regular medical schools and then decided to go to naturopathic medical school. And then when I was there, I was super impressed with the students who did the ND and midwifery program. And I saw that if I added on midwifery, then there were all of these opportunities to m- learn more about women's health. And the more I learned about women's health, the more I loved it, the more excited I was about it, and the more I wanted to make that my,
0: my career. Yeah. So you did end up adding the midwifery portion? I did.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, very so cool. So
0: I am an ND midwife,
1: but I don't deliver babies, um, and I don't practice as a midwife.
0: Okay. But and I definitely cl-
1: use that knowledge to
0: be a better naturopath for women's health. Okay. That makes sense. Wow. So you had a lot of options. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> where, in my mind. Where your career path could go. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's really cool. So I think maybe it'll be helpful for people listening in who may not really know what a naturopathic doctor is versus a conventional doctor. Can you like describe yes. the difference?
1: Yes. So um, a natu- we, there are accredited, med- accredited medical schools for naturopathic medicine. Um, I think there are six in the United States. I'm not actually quite sure. And you go after you have an undergraduate degree, just like you would with regular medical school. And the first two years are very similar to medical school in that you're doing your anatomy and your physiology and your basic sciences. Um, And then the, the second two years of naturopathic medical school are quite different from regular medical school in that we're focusing on exercise and lifestyle modifications and botanical medicine and nutrition. Of course, we're still learning pharmacology, and we still understand how the human body works, and we're being trained to think like doctors to diagnose and treat illness. Um, and our, um, our, clinic, our clinic years are also different. So in the last two years of medical school, you're in the hospital a lot. And you're getting trained to work with patients that are in the hospital. Naturopaths, especially when I was in medical school, are mostly practicing outpatient care, so not hospital care. So we get really good at outpatient care versus if we were in regular medical school, we would be seeing people in the hospital and working more with inpatient care. Got it. So, so at the end of your first two years, you take boards. They're not the same boards as... Medical students, MD medical students take, but we take boards. And at the end of our four years, we take boards again. You have to pass both of those to become a naturopath. Um, and so that's four years of naturopathic medical school, boards. And then one of the other differences is that all medical students, MDs and DOs, get a residency. Um, and partly that's because it's federally funded and residencies are expensive. Um, so Most people don't know, but some of our tax money goes towards educating student doctors to become good doctors, which I love. I wish they had that for naturopaths, but they don't (laughs) because we're not federally licensed yet, whereas medical doctors and DOs are federally licensed. Um, So naturopaths are licensed to be primary care doctors in about half of the states. Texas isn't one of those. Oregon, my home state is, um, which is one of the reasons I came back here. I was missing being a physician. In Texas, I'm acting as a consultant because Texas doesn't recognize our license. Um, Wow. Does that help?
0: Yeah, no, that's really helpful. Okay, great. Um, It's so, it can be confusing because there's, you know, like there's functional doctors, there's naturopathic doctors, there's medical doctors. And then there's also like, dietitians and nutritionists and you know all sorts of I think people get like really tripped up with all that. I
1: agree. And functional <laughs> medicine doctors are DOs and MDs um, who do additional training. And naturopaths okay. are absolutely trained in functional medicine. I mean that is what our whole education is about from day one. But we aren't called functional medicine doctors because those are terms that are usually Left for MDs and DOs, but we use okay. many of the same sort of functional medicine lab testing and assessment um, and protocols.
0: Okay, that that makes sense. I I wasn't even clear on that myself. So, also, I know you're doing. Is it? Are you doing all telemedicine right now with your practice?
1: I am. Um, that was actually planned before COVID, um, and I was planning <laughs> to transition to telehealth. <laughs> um, last year and then COVID hit and I transitioned a little earlier.
0: Wow. That's amazing. That <laughs> Perfect was, timing for you. Really good
1: timing. And I was glad to have some of the systems in place to be ready to switch to health, to telehealth.
0: Yeah. Cause I know you moved from Texas to Oregon, so I'm sure you probably have some of the same, I guess you call them clients here in Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, but for someone, looking for a naturopathic doctor, like where do you, is there somewhere where you can go to find somebody?
1: Yes. So there's the American Association of Naturopathic Physicians, the AANP. That's our large overriding organization. I would definitely check that out. And within that, there's a find a doctor function, and then you type in your zip code, and only licensed naturopaths from accredited medical schools will be on that. Because in in unlicensed states, anyone could call themselves a naturopath. You could call yourself a naturopath today, um, and that would be totally allowed um, (laughs) because there's not regulation. So that's another challenge when you're trying to Mm -hmm. find an ND in an unlicensed state is the lack of regulation so going to our association is a great place to start and then if you're in texas there's the texas association of naturopathic doctors txand and they also only have licensed naturopaths from accredited medical schools and there's also a find a doctor function there and you put in your zip code and
0: it'll pull up all the naturopaths in um, texas that are currently seeing people okay Perfect. That's helpful. I'll put that link in the show notes so people can click and see who's nearby them. So that'll be really good. Um, Let's jump into, we have like a bunch of topics here. (laughs) So I'm looking at my notes over here. Let's start with preconception. We got lots of questions around this topic. So what are your top tips for those considering um, trying to conceive? So they're not quite there yet, but they're thinking about it for the future, are there things to do and not do before you even start trying? Yes.
1: Um, So the short answer is if, okay, so let's say that we're talking about preconception for women under the age of 30, because I think that age matters when you're talking about preconception. Um, But if you are an Otherwise healthy woman, you know you don't have any other diagnoses, you're not on any prescription medications that you need to check in with your doctor if they're safe to take in pregnancy. Um, You're having menstrual cycles about 12 a year, you know, one every 26 to 32 days, and um, you're having some symptoms of ovulation, like some breast tenderness or a little bit of cramping with your period, Um, then. That's what I mean by kind of an otherwise healthy young woman. Mm-hmm. Then for preconception, what I would do is I would take the three to six months prior to wanting to try to conceive and do some simple things. Take a high-quality prenatal vitamin with folate in it, take a high-quality fish oil, and take an essential fatty acid with 200 of DHA as minimum. Um, And then after you've taken those three for three months, I would also recommend stopping alcohol entirely if you're trying to actively conceive, drinking less than two cups of coffee a day, um, and then stopping smoking if you do smoke, cigarettes. um, And are there any other big ones I would recommend? Those would be the biggies. So sex, drugs, and rock and roll, basically. (laughs) Um, And then when you are ready to start trying, so you've stopped smoking, you've stopped drinking alcohol, you've minimized your caffeine intake, um, you've taken a prenatal for a few months, a probiotic, and a a good quality fish oil, then you want to start having sex about every two to three days after your period ends until you think you've ovulated, and then rinse, repeat, do it the next month. So that's how I would recommend someone who is under 30 and otherwise healthy to get ready for trying to conceive.
0: Okay. And and then then what about... Oh, sorry. Go
1: ahead. Oh, sorry. And then the final thing I would say is body mass index is important as a way to prepare for conception. If you are significantly underweight or significantly overweight, it's likely to affect our body's ability to ovulate which is to release an egg each month so that it's ready to be fertilized if we have sex or IUI or whatever. Um, So if you are significantly underweight, under like 17 BMI or over 27, then that would be another piece to try to bring back into balance prior to starting to conceive.
0: Yeah, I've definitely heard that. Cause like, especially if you're underweight, it's like your body is in like fight or flight, and it's like trying to just stay warm or just like maintain your body. It's like I can't support another life in here. Right,
1: right. And you're, <sighs> if you're not releasing an egg, you're not
0: going to get pregnant. Yeah, that makes sense. So for the um, birth or not birth control, the um, prenatals, there's just yes. so many out there. And it's so hard to figure out what works. Um, I know a lot of them make you feel nauseous, and some of them just don't have like the right amount of. I know you said um, folate versus um, what's the Folic other word? Folic acid. acid, yeah, yeah. And then is it me- choline important?
1: Yes, phosphatidylcholine is important, though I think I would I would put that as a secondary supplement. You know, there are those primary ones, which would be a prenatal and essential fatty acid or fish oil, um, and then probiotic would be my other primary. And then I would consider phosphatidylcholine kind of a secondary, not that it's not incredibly beneficial, but one, it's costly, um, compliance, meaning taking it consistently is harder if you have too much of a pill count. So for like the most bang for your buck and the most efficacy and research for efficacy, meaning that it actually works, um, I think that those are the most important. So with with a prenatal, you want to, there are a couple brands that I like, but the most important thing is making sure that the The B vitamin forms are the active forms of the B vitamins. So instead of folic acid, folate is an example. Um, Some women do totally fine with folic acid, but some don't. And so I think it's easier just for everyone to do folate. Um, And I think that's one of those things that it's good to talk to your healthcare practitioner about which one they like. I'm not a fan of the prescription ones because they don't often have the right forms of the B vitamins. I'm more prone to recommend the ones from high quality supplement companies. Some of my favorites, but this is not an exhaustive list, would be Thorne has a good quality prenatal. A company from Canada called Nutritional Fundamentals for Health has a good quality prenatal. So you could always look at the back of those and then compare it to the prenatal somebody has at home and Mm -hmm. um, see if they match. Now about nausea, because you said that too, that's one of those good reasons to do preconception care um, because prenatals, especially the zinc in the prenatals, can make a lot of women once they're pregnant nauseous. Um, but if usually if you're taking a high quality prenatal not on an empty stomach prior to pregnancy, we're not seeing any nausea.
0: That's good to know. Yeah. Um, and then I guess well one thing I just glazed over was you said no alcohol. And that's right. hard. That is that's really yes. hard to do. It is. Um, how did like how does that affect your fertility or I guess does it affect ovulation? So moderate
1: and heavy female drinkers tend to take longer to achieve pregnancy and are also at higher risk of undergoing an infertility evaluation. So Those are the reasons that I recommend against it. Nobody, once you've decided you want to conceive, you usually want it to happen fast. And if alcohol is delaying, you know, getting pregnant, then that's a big reason to stop. And if it's also leading to uh, needing an infertility evaluation, then that's another reason to take it out. Um, And then, of course, there's the very real fact that about 50% of pregnancies are not planned. Um, and we have to take into consideration that if we're drinking alcohol and we're having unprotected sex, then we may be drinking alcohol when we're newly pregnant and that fetus is vulnerable to the effects of alcohol. So that's the other reason to stop once it's in your mind that you may be wanting to try to conceive.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And then I guess on the other end of the spectrum, well, if this is still like for someone who is, thinking about like that they're like, okay, we want a baby soon or want to start trying for a baby soon. So if they're on birth control, um, they've been on it for a while, which I was on it for a very long time too. Like the big question is like, when do you get off of it to start prepping? Because my doctor told me, get off of it when you're ready to have a baby. But I wish that I had gotten off of it earlier, I guess. (laughs) Right.
1: I think the reason that Doctors recommend getting off of it when you are ready is because not every woman is planning her pregnancy as precisely as maybe my clientele is. And um, doctors don't want women to have unintended or unwanted pregnancies or pregnancies that don't work with what's currently happening in their lifestyle. So they recommend just stopping it until you are truly ready to conceive. However, if you are empowered to really take control over those preconception years and you have support and the resources to do it, then I would stop depending on why you, I I would time it, time the stopping depending on why you started it. So if you started it a decade ago because you weren't having menstrual cycles, then that's an indicator that when you stop it, you may not have menstrual cycles again. And so it may take longer for you to re-regulate your cycles versus someone who got on it in their 20s because they were ready to have sex and they wanted to prevent pregnancy, but they had no no problems that they were trying to fix with the pill. Then I would just recommend about three, three to six months prior to wanting to start to conceive And this six months would be so that if it takes a few months for your cycle to come back, one, it doesn't feel like a stressor and you don't feel like, oh, my gosh, I wanted to get pregnant last month and it's taking a little while for my cycle to come back. And the other is so that you still have the time to do those other preconception measures we talked about.
0: Yeah, just give your body some time. Yeah. That's good advice. Um, And then once you are ready to try to conceive – what can we be eating? Are there any dietary changes for both? Everyone thinks it's just on the woman, but it also, you know, takes your spouse's cooperation as well. <laughs> exactly.
1: Um, and the, the, those basic preconception guidelines that we just talked about, they are all for women. Not that I don't see men, but when I prepared today, I was thinking mostly about women. But about 40% of infertility is female only, about 10% is male only, and then about another 40% is combined. So of course, if you're preparing to conceive, you want both partners to be preparing to conceive if they're both donating egg and sperm. Um, And so I agree that the three to six months prior, men should be de- decreasing their alcohol. There's not as much evidence that they need to decrease their alcohol intake as women, but I think it's a good idea. They should limit their caffeine, though, again, there's not quite as much evidence to support them needing to. Um, they should ideally be in within their ideal body weight range as well, but, again, not quite as much evidence that it's important. Um, I do think taking a basic male multi is a good idea. Um, and then the most important thing that men and women can do together when they're conceiving as far as diet is to eat a high vegetable, fruit, plant-based diet. Of course, infertility is is complicated and there's many dietary recommendations that will be specific to the cause of infertility. But if we're just talking about a healthy couple that assumes that they will be conceiving when they start to try, then just focusing on a plant-based diet high in fruits mm-hmm. and vegetables is really important in the few
0: months prior to conceiving. Gotcha. I guess that makes total sense. Just eating all healthy. The anti- yes. All the yeah, antioxidants. All the mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So um, yeah, I think that's will be eye opening for a lot of people just knowing that it also takes your spouse or your partner's participation in (laughs) getting healthy. Although there's not as much proof (laughs) of this, and the reason why, (laughs)
1: yeah, the reason why is when a when a when a girl is developing inside of her mother's uterus, her eggs are being made. And so she has those immature eggs inside of her for her whole life. Men are making new sperm every three months. So they what they do the three months prior can have gigantic impacts on their sperm health and quality, whereas our eggs have been sitting inside of us our whole lives and, um, You know, they're a little more delicate, a little more fragile, and a little harder to change the health of,
0: but absolutely not impossible. Yeah, that is so wild to think about. Yeah, it is. (laughs) It really is. So shifting into the pregnancy category, um, Mm -hmm. so once you've achieved pregnancy, um, I know a lot of women in their first trimester feel nauseous. And sick, and they're eating simple carbs like bagels and pasta and crackers, and maybe not as much of those like antioxidant, you know, fruits and vegetables. Mm-hmm. So, is that will the baby be okay? Is it hard? I mean, what can you do <laughs> to get the some? Baby of the baby will most
1: likely be totally okay. Um, <laughs> and this is one of the reasons that I love preconception care because I think that it allows women to feel reassured that the months prior to conceiving this this baby, they were taking their prenatal vitamin, and they took their fish oil, and they're within their optimal weight range, and um, they've been exercising and eating a little bit healthier. Um, And so hopefully some of those things will actually decrease first trimester nausea a little bit, but also, um, we'll give them some reassurance that they're not going to be malnourished or not giving their baby enough nourishment because of the nausea. Um, and another reassuring thing is that nausea is connect first trimester nausea is actually connected to positive outcomes. So when you're sitting there and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm eating another bagel and there's no nutrition in this. <laughs> as long as you're not having severe nausea and vomiting where you're needing to reach out to your OB-GYN because of hypovolemia, you know, like you're not getting enough fluids or you're not getting enough nutrition, um, the nausea is actually very reassuring. And a few, a month or two of subpar nutrition is going to be fine.
0: Yeah. (laughs) That's reassuring to hear. (laughs) And, um, um... Okay. Oh, I was
1: just going to say also that there are some things that I really like to help with first trimester nausea, um, and that includes eating eating little bits of food throughout the day, which can be really hard when you have first trimester nausea. Um, but a balance of protein and carbohydrate and small tiny meals is shown to help. Drinking your water away from your food. Um, drinking ginger tea or other forms of concentrated ginger, and also um, B6 vitamin have been shown to help. And then like I was saying, back to your question about the reassurance, there is that strong evidence that women with nausea and even vomiting in early pregnancy have lower rates of pregnancy loss in the first trimester than women without those symptoms.
0: That's good. And then women, even though I know a lot of friends of mine that have had babies that didn't have nausea at all. So if also, if you don't have nausea, that doesn't mean that you're going to absolutely not you know, have a lot. Absolutely of. not.
1: And I have to say something I've learned just from doing this job for over a decade is that when we do preconception care, I, I do seem to notice less nausea within a woman. Like, so say she's had three pregnancies, right? And she didn't do any preconception care with the first, and then we did preconception care with the second, and then she didn't do preconception care with the third. We'll notice more manageable first trimester nausea with the preconception care.
0: Huh. That's yeah. really interesting. Um. So there, we have so many. I'm looking at through these and just fun. trying to like. <laughs> Don't rush <laughs> Good, if we you're...
1: if we have to do a second one. You know, like infertility may be its own thing because it's
0: it's so complicated. Yeah. Yeah, we might have to do that. Um the, there's two biggies for okay. like once you're pregnant. So, wh- the first one is okay, the COVID vaccine. <laughs> Got it's it. here and everyone's wondering because there's no data on pregnant women or breastfeeding women. So, what do you think like should pregnant women get the vaccine? Should like if you're trying to conceive, should you get the vaccine? Should we wait? What are your thoughts?
1: (laughs) I think it's an important decision to discuss with your midwife or your OB-GYN prior to conceiving. If you're thinking about conceiving, I think that would be a good part of the kind of preconception um, discussion. So I would add the other part of my preconception plan with people would be to go to your OB-GYN and get your annual if you haven't gotten it, at least, you know, so they can do your bimanual exam and feel your ovaries and feel your uterus and just kind of get a good basic check. And at that time, I think, um, and of course your midwife can do that too, at that time, I think it's important to talk with your healthcare practitioner about it. And the reason is not every woman's situation is the same. You know, there are yeah. some there are some women who are going to have extremely high risk of being exposed to COVID during their pregnancy. Um, there are some women who are going to have extremely high risk of their partner being exposed. You know, during their pregnancy or postpartum, not everyone can stay inside of their house for a year and make money, right? So I can't really speak to any individuals, but what I can, and, and I think it's a really important discussion to have with an educated practitioner, but here's, here's what I can tell you about the vaccine and what I talk to my clients about before, you know, they kind of start processing what they want to do. So for breastfeeding, the, the vaccines are under investigational, you know, they're investigational vaccines permitted for use under the FDA emergency use. And there aren't any specific data on the effects of mRNA vaccines on the breastfed infant or milk production. But based on available information that we have about mRNA, mRNA vaccines, they aren't really likely to be a risk to breastfeeding. So patients who are breastfeeding and meet the criteria for vaccination, which they have to talk about with their healthcare care provider, um, may choose to be vaccinated and should be offered the vaccine, but then they need to have a discussion about their risk benefits, you know. Mm
0: -hmm. Um,
1: For example, if you're an ER doctor and and you're pregnant and you're working on the front lines, that's a totally different situation than someone who's self-isolating for their entire pregnancy and has the privilege and opportunity to breastfeed at home and not go back to work. Um, so those are a few things that I would say about it. In, also, healthcare providers are encouraged to enroll their clients in studies if they are getting vaccinated while they're breastfed. So I do encourage that. Like if a woman decides that she's breastfeeding and she is going to get the vaccine, then absolutely enter yourself into a study because it will help other women.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and then it's basically the same for um, pregnancy. Um, I wanted to pull up one study just because I thought it was really interesting. Okay. So with pregnancy, when you're thinking about whether you want to be vaccinated for something, you're thinking about what is the risk to me as a pregnant woman, what is the risk to my pregnancy, and what is the risk to my baby, right? Right. And Um, what is the risk of getting the disease? What is the risk of the vaccine? And those are all things that we kind of have to think about when we're deciding whether to vaccinate. So one of the questions is, are pregnant women more susceptible to COVID-19? And are they at higher risk for complications of COVID-19? Should they get it? So From what I'm learning, and of course, this is all really new. I mean, this is a novel virus, right? So we're collecting data and we're collecting research as this pandemic goes on. So pregnancy and childbirth generally don't increase the risk of acquiring severe acute respiratory syndrome, coronavirus, SARS. But it does appear to worsen the clinical course of COVID-19 compared to non-pregnant individuals of the same sex and age. So then the second okay, so question- so it makes it worse? It Sorry, does. can you decode yeah. that for me? <laughs> yeah, so what that means is the likelihood of getting SARS is low. Okay. But the likelihood of your COVID being worse, so let's say your COVID being worse because you are pregnant is higher. Okay. So it's basically like if I was going to have a 7 out of 10 horrible experience of COVID non-pregnant I might be more likely to have an eight or nine out of 10 horrible experience, you know, pregnant. So we should be careful about preventing pregnant women from getting COVID. Yeah. And then the ways that you do that are social distancing, wearing a mask, not hanging out with people that are sick, not being in crowded places with other people who aren't wearing masks. Because if you are pregnant and you get COVID, you are at a little bit increased risk for more. Negative outcomes. Does that more clear? Yes.
0: No. That yeah. That makes sense. Okay. So Thank if you. I
1: were pregnant, I would try to be preventing myself from getting COVID. Now the question is: Do you prevent by isolating yourself? Do you prevent by getting the vaccine? Vaccine? Do you prevent by wearing a mask in public places? You know, those are. I'm a hundred percent for those things, and then the vaccine is the questionable one, depending on your current life situation.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. I think a lot of people are just tired of um, social distancing and wearing a mask and not going anywhere. So I think like the vaccine sounds really inviting um, just to have some freedom. But at the same time, like how much are you willing to risk your pregnancy, your health and your baby's health? And so I think a lot of people are waiting on that data and seeing what happens um, with those women who are pregnant who have entered those trials.
1: Yeah. So let's say, so just going back to like deciding on the vaccine and deciding what you're going to do for COVID prevention and pregnancy. So does COVID-19 increase the risk of pregnancy complications is another thing to think about and another thing to discuss with your provider. So infected pregnant women, especially those who develop pneumonia, appear to have an increased frequency of preterm birth. That's meaning going into labor before 37 weeks or needing to have a C-section because their pneumonia is severe enough that the doctor has deemed it safer for the baby. Oh, wow. So this is is one of those things where with my pregnant clientele, who I know a lot about and I know who are also getting good quality healthcare from a midwife or an OB-GYN. We're talking about all of the different ways to prevent the spread of viruses. Um, And we know we don't want people to sneeze in our face, right? (laughs) No one does. I I don't want someone with a flu to sneeze in my face. I don't, you know, so social distancing, wearing masks, isolation, those are proven ways to prevent the spread of viruses. And then the vaccine definitely decreases the transmission of the virus and the spread of the virus. But we don't yet have, you know, definitive long-term studies on the vaccine in pregnant women.
0: Right. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, those are good conversations to have and just things to weigh, um, you know, the pros and cons. It's just so, it's stressful already to like, it shouldn't be stressful to be trying to conceive. But during, it's just a different Thing during a pandemic, and then on top of the pandemic, you know, deciding what you're going to do about the vaccine, which I think right. a lot of us, at least for me, like I'm not even on the plan yet to even be able to get a vaccine. So it's kind of just like an early right. thing to think about. Absolutely. And <laughs> to I'm worry most, about.
1: <laughs> absolutely. I mean, unless you're a healthcare provider or like a teacher in Oregon um, and you're a young woman, you're not going to have access to the vaccine.
0: Yeah, I guess so in then, Texas. You, sorry, go ahead.
1: I was gonna say, so then those other measures for prevention of the spread of illnesses become more important.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think yeah. in Texas, if you're pregnant, you can get the vaccine. So okay. I think maybe it will be more. I guess. A right. Reasonable conversation. And that's conversation. another one
1: of those things that's so interesting is every state's different.
0: So. Yep. <laughs> What's even available to you? <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's all so new. Um, this is kind of a different one, but I have heard that ultrasounds can be I I don't want to use the word harmful, but maybe mm-hmm. harmful for your baby. Mm-hmm. Um, if you get too many it could because sometimes like your doctor will say, Hey, you can come in, you know, maybe you have a high risk pregnancy, so you're getting ultrasounds like all the time. Is it is it bad for the baby?
1: Like, is that true? So I actually did a little bit of research on this um, when I saw that you sent over this question, because people do ask this question a lot. So the use, my number one is the use of ultrasound should be reserved for clear medical indications. And of course, that has to be discussed between you and your provider. But extra ultrasounds that are unnecessary, I absolutely say stay away from. Um, No significant adverse effects have been identified in children exposed to obstetric ultrasound in utero, and those children were followed for several years after birth, so that's a really good thing to hear. The primary concern with the use of ultrasound is with respect to the heating up effect, what they call the thermal effect. And they have something called the thermal index, which is basically measuring how much the ultrasound raises the temperature. Um, And the intensities used in transvaginal ultrasound exams, you know, where they use the wand, are generally lower than those on the transabdominal examination, so over your belly. However, that thermal risk or the temperature going up um, is quite low, like less than one degree Celsius in those medical ultrasounds. Um, So overall, I think that if you keep them to as few as possible, only for true medical indications, and um, they essentially are in and out as quickly as possible while still getting the medical information that they need, I think that they're a useful tool. Okay, that's Um, good. I don't think we should be doing a whole bunch of, um, you know, those fancy ones with the color and the 3D. Those do seem to raise the temperature more. That's what I was looking at the research. So one, they're not medically indicated. And two, they do seem to raise the temperature more. So that theoretical idea of raising the temperature being problematic, I would skip
0: those. Got it. Yeah. That's really interesting.
1: Does that Um, help? Does
0: that make sense? Yes. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, I thought that was kind of like a weird thing that I – like maybe a myth that I had read (laughs) somewhere. Yeah. But it is is interesting because like if you can really fall down that rabbit hole of like, you know, Googling and seeing things on forums and like – Right. If you're trying to be super healthy and clean and holistic and do everything right, you know, for yourself and your baby, you can – really go crazy. (laughs) Yes,
1: absolutely. Um, helpful is because it does help people to stop that, you know, (laughs) blogosphere rabbit hole of what's going on and what should I do. And, um, it can cause a lot of anxiety and make women feel like there's so much responsibility on their shoulders and that everything is their fault. And if they just did this or that, then everything would have been fine. and. that, that's a huge burden to bear. So let someone who's spent their life educating themselves and, you know, has the right training, interpret that and, um, give you good advice.
0: Yeah. And I guess that kind of is a good segue into miscarriage because when you do have a miscarriage, like I, a lot of women have that guilt and think that it they had only done something differently. And I think that's just a natural like thought process, unfortunately, but I know that it's usually not, um, the, the mom's fault. So are there, I know they're so common. What is it like one in four pregnancies end in miscarriage? You know, I actually
1: don't know the statistics, um, uh, (laughs) but it's extremely common, um, and, I'm, let's stick for this discussion not on recurrent pregnancy loss, you know, where a couple uh, has lost more than three, um, but let's stick with women having less than three for this discussion. And if we ever want to do a whole nother session on recurrent pregnancy loss, I would love to do that. Um, so if you've had less than three and and also let's stick to first trimester pregnancy loss versus second or third because again that's like a totally
0: okay. separate
1: topic different. and different underlying causes and different treatments and different regulations so um yes early pregnancy loss prior to 13 weeks is very common and it's very common for most women who over the over their reproductive lifespan are going to have a miscarriage or two. It um becomes more medically concerning once a woman gets into the recurrent pregnancy loss category, which is three or more. Um, so back to just first yeah. trimester pregnancy loss less than three. Um, can you ask your question again now that I've kind yeah, of Yeah, sorry. I don't words. even think
0: <laughs> I don't think I even asked it. So, okay. um are there <laughs> But that is interesting. I didn't realize that I've heard the term recurrent miscarriage and I wasn't sure like where the line was there. So, that's interesting to know that it's 3 or more and that you're, you know, having one or two is super common, which is really unfortunate, but um are there are there steps that you can take during pregnancy? Obviously, like All this preconception Mm -hmm. care is helpful to prevent loss. But are there any things you can do once you're pregnant to hopefully avoid miscarriage and also just avoid that fear? I think a lot of women have that fear in the first trimester of losing their baby.
1: Yes. And I just think that's for so many women just a natural part of being a mother, you know, is caring for the life of your child, right? whether it's a week old or 80 years old. Um, so yes, preconception care is important. Getting a workup, going to see your OB-GYN and getting your annual before you start trying to conceive is helpful. Um, doing those preconception tips that we talked about. But there are some common risk factors for pregnancy loss, and that includes increasing maternal age. So As we age, we are more likely to have miscarriages. Um, Prior pregnancy loss. So once you've had three miscarriages, you are more likely to have another one unless you change something. So it's extremely important at that point to get an appropriate workup. Um, Other medical conditions that someone may have. Um, Or other medications that a woman's on that she may not understand are affecting her fertility. Substance abuse. Um, And then, so, having children earlier is obviously going to decrease that risk of increasing maternal age and the chromosomal abnormalities that go along with that. Um, Prior pregnancy loss, maybe it's time for a workup, going in to see someone that is well-educated and making some modifications before you try again. Managing your other medical conditions, like say you have diabetes, for example, or high blood pressure or long-standing anemia, or you know those are things that might need to be addressed. Or say you're on medications that are known to not be safe in pregnancy, but so many women are on those and they don't know. So going in and checking with your doctor and saying, hey, these are the meds I was on. I didn't even think about it when I was first trying to conceive, but now that I've had a pregnancy loss, I'd like, you know, someone to look over these with me. And then, of course, if there is substance abuse, like alcoholism, um, then it's important to get help. And a lot of women hide their alcohol intake and abuse because if we're addicted, then we're addicted, right? And we don't want to share it and we feel ashamed, um, but I think it's really important to know that doctors are a safe space, healthcare providers are a safe space, therapists are a safe space, um, and reaching out to get that sort of help. So um, are there any other things that I think are really important? I
0: think important? what you said about getting a workup, um, Yeah, that seems obvious um, because that's right? like what you do. <laughs> But a lot right. of, but a lot of women, <laughs> right. I know I'm have, in my own world. <laughs> no, but I like, I, I know that too, because I've just, I feel like I love this naturopathic holistic world. So I follow mm-hmm. a lot of people on Instagram and read a lot. Um, and, but, and listen to podcasts, but, um, a lot of women that have, have suffered a loss in the first trimester or whenever. And then they may have another one or not. But the reason is always unknown. Usually the doctor won't know what the reason for the miscarriage was, or it could be just explained as some chromosomal issue, which is pretty common. But if you've had one or even like two, I think at that point, it's like you want answers. So it is important to go absolutely and get some, like get a workup. And I think you can kind of dissect and get to the root cause of what's happening agreed
1: I if, if you did preconception care prior to your first pregnancy loss you know take some time let your body rebalance try again and then after that second one I think most women if you can' afford it um, should go in and get a workup Part of the problem is sometimes insurance won't pay for a workup until you've had three or more which is devastating mm-hmm. to women but it's a reality. Um, and, and I know that right now, not all women in America get the same healthcare and it absolutely depends on privilege and socioeconomic status and,
0: yeah, that's a good point. Um,
1: extra resources, but in a perfect world, we would all have access to it when we wanted it and we're ready for it. And, um, that was evidence-based. So af- that, that workup would include going to see your midwife or OB-GYN. Or if you're working with me, talking to me before you're going to get the workup so we can chat about what to make sure to ask them for, depending on, you know, what I see. And then you're going to get, sometimes you'll get an ultrasound. You'll definitely get a pap smear if you haven't had one. You're definitely going to get a bimanual. The bimanual is where the practitioner puts their fingers inside of you and then on top of your belly because they're feeling for your uterus and your ovaries. Um, They'll check your lungs and your heart, maybe run some basic blood work. Um, and that's a really good starting point, at least.
0: Yeah. That is that is a good point, though. It's not like everyone can afford to go get a, a workup. And it's unfortunate that you have to wait until 3. That I know, because by then, change. You're,
1: a lot of people are pretty heartbroken. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, okay, I can't decide... <laughs> Because we're running low on time, we might have to do another one just on like healthy hormones and PCOS and endometriosis and and infertility too. But I guess um, (laughs) all the things we can, I'm going to ask you just a few questions about infertility. And then we had a couple of questions about postpartum, but um, let's do, since we're in the miscarriage section, let's talk about um, if you are struggling to conceive, at what point I know like, if you Google it or if you talk to a doctor, they're like, wait a whole year if you're healthy and under a certain age range, I guess, to see your doctor mm-hmm. if you're struggling. Um, what do you think about that? Like, when should someone reach out and sh- should they go to, like, someone like you or should they go to a fertility doctor? Like, what, what would be their first step?
1: Yeah, so... If you're under age 30 and no other medical conditions, you can wait for a year to go get help. Um, if you're over 30 and you haven't gotten pregnant after six months of actively trying, you know, like I said, having sex every two to three days from post when your bleeding's done until you think you've ovulated, I would go after six months because we know that it takes long to get pregnant and your risk factors for not getting pregnant are... Um, going up as we age. So I wouldn't take as long to reach out for help. Um, My caveat to that, and when I mean help there, I'm talking about like an actual infertility workup from a fertility specialist. I would reach out to someone like me much sooner. So, I would cut both of those in half. So, if you're under 30 and you've been trying for six months and you're like, we have a lot of sex, I have a period every month, come on, you know, definitely reach out to me by then. And if you're over 30, even after three months, you know, it's time to start putting some positives into the whole system so that we can shorten the time and increase the likelihood of a full term pregnancy.
0: Okay. That makes sense. And then once, um, you've been given an infertility diagnosis, like it may be unknown or it's been over a year or something and you're Mm -hmm. going in to do IUI or IVF or some kind of option like that with a fertility doctor. Is it helpful to also seek like a naturopath's help in, like in addition to that?
1: I I think so. Um, of course, You know, infertility is a complex disorder. It has medical, psychosocial, and economic aspects. Um, And the causes of infertility are, like we talked about, females about 40%, males about 10%, combined is 35%. And then within that, the causes of infertility from, like, highest percentage to lowest would be ovulatory disorders, so ovary not releasing an egg, um... PCOS would be an example of an ovulatory disorder. So not ovulating, you know. The second one would be endometriosis. Below that would be pelvic adhesion. So like within the uterus and fallopian tubes, um, basically it's kind of sticking together. And then the egg and the sperm can't easily travel inside the uterus or the fallopian tube. Tubal blockage, like a whole block of the fallopian tube. um, so and then of course with advanced maternal age there's going to be increased infertility as well. So depending on what the cause of the female infertility is then IUI or IVF or similar treatments they'll be some of them will be warranted, some of them won't and naturopathy and what I do absolutely can help with ovulatory disorders, absolutely can help with endo not so much pelvic adhesions, though I do still think um, oftentimes with pelvic adhesions and tubal blockages, you a woman will need IVF and that that seems obvious to me, but let me just explain if if the sperm and the egg can't reach each other to get fertilized, then as a natural doctor, I don't have a lot of power to change that so right that'd be a time where like a combined effort would be really important um. And then when we're talking about infertility, you, you have these lists of like the things that it can come from, you know, ovulatory disorders, PCOS, right. tubal blockages. But oftentimes there's more than one reason a couple is not getting pregnant. So let's say that the woman has a tubal blockage, and so she's definitely a candidate for IVF. And we want to prepare her to go through the retrieval well, um, have successful fertilization. We can also be working with her partner in the months before the, you know, the sperm donation to Mm -hmm. improve the quality of his sperm health. So that when you do IVF, then there's more likelihood of having fertilization and healthy embryos. So they definitely work really well together. And then sometimes you don't even need IVF or IUI or ART. And, um, The more holistic approaches are enough to to lead to conception.
0: And what are some of the things that you do with like cases like this? Like, you adjust the diet and like offer supplements, or what are some? Yeah.
1: Well, let let I mean, let's just give one example because, again, because it's so complicated. Let's say someone has PCOS. But there are no other issues, right? They've gotten a complete workup. Both partners have gotten a workup. Nothing else is going on. They've also kind of had a psychosocial workup, meaning there's not like extreme family stress. There's not domestic violence. There's not all of these things. So like a very clear-cut case. Um, With PCOS, I would absolutely be working with diet, exercise, certain supplements. Um, and with, with PCOS, you're th- thinking about insulin resistance mm-hmm. and you're thinking about elevated testosterone, elevated androgens in women. And that insulin resistance and those elevated androgens are affecting a woman's ability to release an egg every month. So naturopaths have a lot of tools in their toolbox to help with that insulin resistance through diet, specific dietary modifications, which the dietary modifications I would suggest for PCOS would be extremely different than for endo because a woman with endo doesn't have insulin resistance and she doesn't have elevated androgens. Uh, Her issue is different. So with PCOS, Mm -hmm. we're having a diet that's going to impact those positively. We're going to choose supplements that are positively going to impact those, bring down the androgens, improve the insulin resistance. Um, If she needs to lose weight, um, then for every 10 pounds of weight loss, we see more ovulation. Um, So some of my favorite supplements, but again, it needs to be in context of seeing someone and knowing what's going on. Mm -hmm. I love inositol for PCOS. I love NAC for N-acetylcysteine for PCOS, um, especially for the women with the elevated androgens.
0: Gotcha. So yeah, it definitely is a personal journey and a lot of trial and error.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And I would say not so much trial and error if you have a doctor who knows what they're doing and a ton of trial and error if you're reading blogs on the internet (laughs) because you don't know, am I a woman with PCOS that has elevated androgens or not? Not every woman with PCOS has elevated androgens.
0: And I think it might take people a, a little while to make that leap from Googling, like, hmm, wonder what's going on to actually summoning the help of a physician. Yes,
1: absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I'm doing um, the Dutch pee test right now just for fun because people ask me about it. And I like to try things before <laughs> I tell people how I feel. And I have to collect my pee every day for 33 days. Oh, That's a huge gosh. amount of work. And it is nothing compared to what my clients have to do.
0: What is that for? Um,
1: it's looking at um, so you're looking at urinary metabolites, so breakdown products of different hormones. Wow, um, that
0: is and a I'm more dedication. studying it thinking about
1: um, menopause, but um, an endo. But it's just the the point is to say it, it's a lot of work, and it takes a lot of time and energy and resources, um, and perseverance and. I think that's why when you have someone on your team who's there to support you through that, it makes that endurance piece a little easier.
0: For sure. Well, we're almost up at our hour mark, but I just wanted to hit on one more thing um, and then we'll have to save the rest for another episode. But Mm -hmm. um, I've talked to several friends about this, about postpartum. We see the happy photos on Instagram of the moms who've just given birth and there's just So joyful and happy, and they, but we don't ever hear about, or we rarely hear about the post baby blues and the tough parts of being a new mom. Um, and so because of that, um, because of the highlight reel we're all like attached to, we may miss signs of postpartum Mm -hmm. depression in ourselves. So, what are, I know it's really common, um, and maybe some people that have it may feel ashamed of it, which is silly, but what are some signs that? We can look at if like for the future or maybe for currently for people listening, like signs that you may have postpartum and what you can do. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So postpartum depression is absolutely real and it's absolutely common and it absolutely needs to be paid attention to and identified. And if you are a woman that has a history of depression or a history of postpartum depression, then you need to let your provider know that um, when you're going into your pregnancy because we should be paying more attention to those signs and symptoms but what they are is what we call dysphoria or like feeling sad hopeless discouraged down in the dumps Um, and sometimes like the person looking at the person who is depressed they'll say that they feel look sad but the person who's actually depressed may not use the word sad or depressed. They may mm-hmm. feel anxious, or they may say they have they're not feeling anything. They may feel extremely annoyed or frustrated or irritable or angry. Um, so it's not always like a crying person. So that's one thing. The second is loss of interest or pleasure in activities that we used to find interest and pleasure in.
0: Mm.
1: Another is change in appetite or weight. Um, and then also, it can it can manifest as an inability or impaired ability to think, concentrate, or make decisions. And what's challenging about postpartum depression or perinatal depression is a lot of those are very common experiences, just of being a parent or of being That's a what new I'm parent. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's really important to have continuity of care. And that's one of the things that I love about the midwifery model of care is that they believe in continuity of care. Because if I know you before you're pregnant, I know your general affect and your general mood, right? And I'm watching Mm -hmm. you through your whole pregnancy and I'm knowing your general affect and I know your general mood and I'm asking you the questions I should be asking you. Or is there fighting at home? Are you feeling unsupported? Is there domestic violence? Is there... Financial issues, um, you know, there are so many things that your provider is kind of checking up on you on a regular basis and they should also be noticing changes, you know, because it's a relationship between a provider and a patient or a provider and a, um, client. Mm -hmm. And then postpartum, you're also watching out for those mood changes. And with the continuity of care, you know, the person well, um, And so it's easier to identify and you're asking those questions on a regular basis. Um, But I think that if you are a woman and you think you may have it, then it's extremely important to communicate to someone safe that you may. Um, And no harm in someone saying, hey, this this isn't postpartum depression, but I'm glad you talked and here are some things we can do to help. Um, And sometimes women just don't even realize that their symptoms are as severe as they are because they're tired and they're breastfeeding Mm -hmm. and their whole life has changed and maybe they're not working or maybe they're home alone, isolated all day and they're like, oh, this is normal. Better to communicate if you're having those feelings and um, get the help that you need. And then I would say the other piece of it is for postpartum depression, you need psychotherapy um, and you may need medication, and I'm not opposed to that in any form if a woman needs that for po- postpartum depression. Mm-hmm. So I know sometimes people think naturopaths don't believe in prescription medications. <laughs> there are absolutely times for prescription medications, and they work.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's good to know. I hope that's helpful for anybody listening. I'm um, sure it will be. And yeah. just to end on a less sad note, right. <laughs> Um I have one last question for you. And that is about, I just popped back in my head, but someone had asked about prenatals. So like once you start taking prenatals three to six months before you even start trying, hopefully, um, mm-hmm. do you take it just through, like when do you stop? <laughs> do you, when you're you done taking it, Okay.
1: Unless you want to have another baby right after, which a lot of women do. Um, then you can just take a prenatal from age 20 to age 45. It's not going to hurt, you know. Yes, you need to be monitoring your iron status. You don't want to get iron overload, but most women who are menstruating and making babies are not going to have iron overload. Um, So you definitely want to take it a few months prior to conceiving. That's extremely important. Um, you definitely want to take it through your pregnancy, but if you can't handle it in your first trimester, it's okay. And then you want to take it postpartum because the demands, especially if you're breastfeeding, the demands, the nutritional demands are high. Um, and so it's good to take that to support your body
0: while you're breastfeeding. Yeah, that's a good point.
1: There was one question you asked me about breastfeeding and PCOS. Oh yeah. Um, do you want me to answer
0: that? Yeah, go ahead. Um, yeah, someone had asked that about, like, I, gu- I guess, does PCOS affect breastfeeding and how do you continue breastfeeding past a year with it? Yeah.
1: So, um, the short answer is in my practice, I have, gosh, I hate to say never, but I almost want to say never. I don't, I have extremely rarely seen my PCOS clients have any negative impact on breastfeeding. But We've been working on their health prior to conceiving. We've been dealing with the insulin resistance. We've been dealing with the blood sugar dysregulation. We've been dealing with the androgen excess. Um, So they're usually going into pregnancy having conceived naturally or having rebalanced everything and doing Clomid or letrozole, like ovulation induction. Um, And so I'm not seeing any issues. But if you look at the data on um, PCOS and breastfeeding, you know, in women who aren't necessarily getting this, you know, very high volume of support, there is a delay in the progression from colostrum, that like honey-like liquid at the very beginning, to the copious milk production, you know, like what we call our milk coming in. Um... And women usually perceive that by, like, breast fullness or leakage. And that usually comes about three days postpartum. But there's a, a delay in women with PCOS of their milk coming in, especially if they have insulin resistance or other endocrine abnormalities like thyroid issues or pregnancy-induced hypertension or PCOS. And PCOS is usually if those androgens, like testosterone, have stayed elevated during pregnancy. But those delayed milk production days can usually be completely managed with um, breastfeeding support or having a lactation consultant and increasing the frequency of feeding. feeding. So if a woman has PCOS and she's worried about her milk coming in, hire a lactation consultant or interview a lactation consultant while you're still pregnant um, so you know that you have one on hand And you can call him or her right away in those first couple days if your milk hasn't come in by 72 hours postpartum. And then she'll or he will be able to kind of guide you on how to get that milk coming in. Got it.
0: Wow, so many things to think about. So many. (laughs) (laughs) You're a wealth of knowledge. (laughs) There's so much that I have still on here, so we're definitely going to have to do this again.
1: I would love to, yeah. Um, and the fertility. Let me see if there's any other questions that were just connected to anything you asked me. I feel like we could do endo in a totally different discussion.
0: Um, For sure, because it's and it's big and completely different from PCOS. And then there's a yeah. lot of on hormone health. Like someone asked about seed cycling and how do you know if your cycles are unhealthy and. Ooh.
1: I could. I mean, I could. Do you want me to tell you, or do you need to go?
0: Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> okay.
1: Um, so, I think that every young woman, as soon as she starts menstruating, should get education on what her periods are all about. Right. So, um, when we talk about our cycles, we talk about cycle day one is the first day of bleed, and it's normal to have about three to five days of bright red blood. So that's one way to know your cycle's healthy. The second way to know your cycle is healthy is that you are having a new period about every 26 to 32 days. The third way to know your cycle is healthy is that about midway through your cycle, you have bodily changes, right? You get some bloating around mid-cycle. That's normal um, because you've just released an egg and your progesterone is rising and that can cause some transient bloating. Um, and for some women, it causes long-term bloating, but it is a good sign that you released an egg. Um, and if you have breast tenderness in the second half of your cycle, that's also a really good sign that you have a healthy cycle and you're releasing an egg. So, And then if you have cervical fluid changes, so that means the fluid in your panties. Um, women are really embarrassed to talk about it, but we all have fluid in our panties, and it changes throughout the month. So first, we have our period. Then sometimes we have a few dry days where we don't notice anything, or we notice like a silky fluid. And then right before ovulation, what happens is we have this beautiful estrogen surge, which leads to an LH surge, which leads to ovulation. But that estrogen surge causes another type of cervical fluid that we call egg white. And if you were to crack an egg and separate the yolk from the white part, that white egg white is what fertile cervical fluid feels like. Um, And women might be embarrassed about it or think it's gross, but it's really awesome and it's really healthy and it keeps sperm alive. And it's an indicator that we are about to ovulate. So that's another positive sign if your cervical fluid is changing throughout the month. And then usually after we ovulate, our cervical fluid dries up and then we don't have anything or we have a dry vaginal sensation or we don't have a lot of cervical fluid. And that's because after you ovulate, your progesterone goes up and the progesterone dries up that cervical fluid. So those are some ways to just kind of monitor your own cycle really simply and know if it's basically healthy or maybe you need some more support.
0: So at the end of that cycle, how? what are signs that you may be pregnant if it's different? Oh,
1: I love that. Um, that is not reliable. So, <laughs> And every woman who has struggled with infertility probably is like, yeah, no joke. So the symptoms of PMS or the symptoms of about to have your period are often the same as early pregnancy, right? We can feel nauseous. We can have breast mm-hmm. tenderness. Our we can have some wet cervical fluid again, because right before we're about to bleed, our progesterone drops, and so our cervical fluid becomes wet again. But if you're pregnant, your estrogen has just gone up, and so your cervical fluid may feel wet again. So um, those symptoms are not that reliable. It's more reliable to either go, I know when I ovulated, and it's and I had unprotected sex and now it's been 18 days since I ovulated and I still don't have a period, that's a very good sign that you probably will have a positive pregnancy test if you pee on it in the morning. Um, But some women have no symptoms whatsoever.
0: Yeah. It's just crazy that there's, like you said, PMS and then like maybe I'm pregnant symptoms are... (laughs) It's a roller coaster. It's an emotional roller coaster. So rude. Yes, it really is. (laughs) It's for both parties: people that want to get pregnant and people that don't. Right. Exactly. Right. Can be terrifying or exciting or frustrating. Right. Depends on what you want. (laughs) (laughs) This has been awesome. Oh, I have one. I guess I've I've said that a a million times. I have one last question, but if. There are, like, people listening are like, hey, okay, I want to learn more. Um, are there any books or podcasts that you suggest they can read or listen to? Yeah,
1: this is one of those things. I- I'm not a millennial. I was born in the 70s. <laughs> um, I-, I feel like you should reach out to a doctor. But one of my favorite books is Taking Charge of Your Fertility. And I would read that cover to cover if i wanted to understand my body better yeah. yeah and i didn't want to reach out to a healthcare practitioner um it's excellent it's extremely informative it's evidence based um it's ex- extremely cheap to chart your cycles you know you have to buy a 10 dollar thermometer and that's about it um it's very empowering um so if I were going to recommend one thing that I think would not trip people up or make them more confused or more stressed out, it would be that book. It would be Taking Charge of Your Fertility. I, I always forget the name of the author, but it's a woman. And um, and then I would buy a $10 oral basal body thermometer and start charting your cycles per that book's recommendations. So there are these awesome things like the Ava bracelet, right, Um, that do it all for you.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: How I think about that is the Ava bracelet's like using a calculator. And we want little kids to learn how to do math first, right? So we want a kid to know how to add three plus three before they start using the calculator. So I think it's still best to chart your cycles manually in the beginning so you can really understand them. And then if you want to switch over to one of these fancy things that does it for you, then then great. Um, but it's kind of like doing math with your own brain versus math with a calculator. You'll get it better and you'll understand what's going on with your cycles quicker if you're doing it yourself, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, that's so true. And I'm just like, it baffles me that I read this book and like learned a lot of this simple stuff that you just went through of my own body like at age 30. Like I'm like, why am I just now learning this. This is nuts. Right. I mean, they're 13 years old. We got to talk about
1: it. We definitely got to talk about it because it's just basic female experience to have a period. And if you're not having a period, that's also a basic female experience. And then you need to understand why not instead of thinking, oh, it's totally normal for me to be 18 and not be having a period. Yeah.
0: And hormones are just so crazy. Like they... they change all throughout all these different stages we talked about. And then further into menopause, like you need to know what's going on (laughs) or at least have some kind of idea. (laughs)
1: Right. Um, And um, it's extremely empowering when you chart your cycles because even if you're not ovulating – so a lot of women will say, well, I'm not having my cycles. Why would I chart it? I would still read the book and I would still chart it for a few months just because it's going to let you feel confident – when you go to your doctor, like, yeah, I haven't had a period in three months, and I've been charting my cycles, and I very clearly am not ovulating, and I'm not having cervical fluid. My hormones are not shifting as they should throughout the month,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: and I want you to help me. I need help, <laughs> you know? Yeah,
0: yeah. I think that's the bottom line is definitely reach out to your doctor or a new doctor, someone that you feel comfortable with. and um, Right get the help that you need. Or if you feel like you are healthy, it's great to go get an annual and just have a baseline before you jump into even considering trying to conceive. Right. Yeah. So, well, awesome. We have run over our hour and I'm just so appreciate you and your time and answering all these questions. Um, I think, yes, you're so welcome. Yeah. This has been awesome. So thank you so much. And thank you for the thoughtful questions. Yes, of course. And there are plenty more, as you know. So hopefully you'll be willing to come on again because we we have yes, a lot. <laughs> absolutely. Yes. Right. I think we could talk
1: for hours about infertility and the, the main causes like PCOS and endo um, because those are some places where naturopaths really shine and can really help people. And then also recurrent pregnancy loss. Um, my colleague, um, Dr. Bates, um, she would be amazing to have on to talk about that. And that is an extremely complicated discussion, but it's it's something that can be solved and it's something that you can get to the bottom of and there are things that can help. Um, but you really need a team.
0: Yeah. And that is that brings a lot of hope to a lot of people. So <laughs> that sounds like a great plan. <laughs> Perfect. So nice okay. to meet you and yes, thank you, you for having me. Thank you so much. Thank you guys for listening to this episode. What'd you guys think? Did you learn something new? I definitely did. So I hope you guys will follow Dr. Namas on Instagram. It's Kate N D, And you can check out her website in the show notes as well. As always, be sure to hit subscribe so you'll see new episodes come in every other Wednesday. And if you want to, just take 60 seconds, literally just one minute to go rate and review the Fitness Insider on Apple Podcasts. Finally, I now have an email newsletter, so join that and you'll get a little note each time there's a new episode and I'll drop some special goodies in there just for you. Thank you guys again for listening and I hope you have a wonderful day. Before you go, I just want to take a quick second to tell you about today's sponsor, Organify If you've listened to this podcast before, you've probably heard me talk about it or also on my Instagram, but I just love Organify because they're an easy way to to get organic high quality superfoods and adaptogens into my body in a fun and tasty way. So they're gluten free, dairy free, vegan, organic, and soy free. They have all kinds of products, but my favorites are the red juice, the gold, and the harmony cacao blend. The red juice is great for a little afternoon boost because it's packed with superfoods and does not have any caffeine. It's berry flavored, so it tastes really good. It has pomegranate, cranberry, blueberry, raspberry, strawberry, beet, acai, lemon, and more. So it's packed with, like I said, superfoods, which means antioxidants and adaptogens, including cordyceps and rhodiola, It's freeze dried for maximum absorption and a smoother texture and it gives you a nice little boost without any caffeine so no crash later. Um, I just do it with a scoop in a water bottle and I shake it up with some water and I add ice and it's delicious. The Gold is great for at nighttime. It's soothing and helps you to relax. I serve it with hot water. I stir it up and top it with a little dairy-free creamer. And it also has nine potent superfoods, turmeric, lemon balm, turkey tail mushroom, reishi, ginger, and more. And like I said, it's just great for rest and relaxation, recovery, repair, and a healthy immune response. So it's an, it tastes delicious and it's a great little like after dinner delight, if you will. I try to take a break from the chocolate and I just go for my gold latte and it's nice and sweet and it kind of gives me that nice desserty flavor that I'm looking for. Nothing wrong with chocolate. In fact, Organifi just sent me their new immune chocolate bar that's mostly dark chocolate. So it's healthy. So I can continue my chocolate too. I might just have that with my cup of gold. If you want to try Organifi, be sure to use my code to get 15% off your order. Just enter code NatalieWolf, that's Natalie, W-O-L-F-E, at checkout to get 15% off. <laughs>